Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn with us to the book of Genesis. And we have been uh, in the midst of an exposition of this first book of the Christian Scriptures. And we have been looking in particular the last several Lord's Days at this inspired account of the creation. And today we're in Genesis 2, and we're going to read from verses 4 to verse 17. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand again in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 2, and from verse 4, wherein Moses faithfully records... These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pishon, that is, it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, there is Bedalium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that encompasseth, that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of His Word. And let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give Thee thanks for this revelation of truth about who Thou art, about who we are, and what man's state is now after the fall. We give Thee thanks for this revelation of truth. Give us Thy illumination. Send the Holy Spirit to be the true preacher and instructor as we walk through this text together. Open our eyes. Unstop our ears. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Thomas Boston 
was a noted Scottish Presbyterian and Puritan who lived from 1676 to 1732. Among his best known writings was a book titled Human Nature in its Fourfold State. This book was so popular in its day that it was said at one time that nearly every home in Scotland had a copy of the Bible and a copy of Boston's work, Human Nature, in its fourfold state. As the title indicates, Boston suggested that the entire history and condition of mankind could be understood as divided into four states. He said, first of all, there was man in the state of innocency. Man before the fall. And this is described for us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Second, then, he said, there is man in his fallen state. The condition of unregenerate men after Genesis 3, which will describe man's fall into sin. Third, he said, there are those who come to faith and they are regenerated by God. And he said, such persons are men in the state of grace. These are redeemed men who are living in this world. They're saved, although there are remaining corruptions within them. And then fourthly and finally, he said, there will be man in the state of glory. Man in the state of glory. That one day at the return of Christ, At the final resurrection, men will enter into the the resurrection state. Fallen men, unregenerate men will enter into hell while redeemed men will be with the Lord forever. And he said, that's it. You can break down all of human existence according to these four states. The fourfold state of man. Man in innocence, fallen man, redeemed man, and glorified man. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, as I already said, we have a description of man in the state of innocency. And that's what our passage that we're looking at today is about, from Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. It's a description of man in the state of innocency. It's a man before the fall. Man before corruption. We might uh, draw uh, an analogy um, I don't, don't know if you're somebody who collects things. I know there are people who collect various things. Uh, one of my favorite shows to sometime to watch, sit down and watch is Antiques Roadshow and see people who bring in uh, their things that they've collected and so forth. And you know if you collect things, might be mechanical devices, might be toys, whatever it is, what's always going to be increase the value of that thing if it's in a pristine condition? If it's still in the box, if you've got those you know, 1977 Star Wars figures that are still in the box, if it's in the pristine condition, that's going to increase the value of it. Well, what we see, if I could draw this dim analogy, in Genesis 2, 4 through 17, is a picture 
of man in his pristine state. Man in the state of his innocence. And as we turn to this passage, one of the questions we might ask about Genesis 2, starting here in verse 4, one might ask, why are we hearing this again? Didn't we already hear this? And indeed, if we go back and we look at Genesis chapter 1, we did have a description of the the, the six days of creation, how God made all things in the space of six days and all very good. And in fact, we've already read, if you look back at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28 in particular, how on the sixth day after God had created all the land creatures, that God had also created Man, man is a special part of the creation. We talked about this in verses 26 and 27, how man was made in the image and likeness of God, that man is distinct and different from all the other creatures. Why then are we hearing this again? And I think what we see in Genesis 2 is that Moses, guided by the Holy Spirit, was led to take us back once again. Because man is so special, because he is the crown of the creation, that Moses was guided by the Holy Spirit to tell us even more about the special creation of man, to give us more insight into man, and also to prepare us for understanding what will happen in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. Remember, we were told God looked at the creation. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 31, He saw everything was very good. We saw then last time on the seventh day in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, how God had rested on the seventh day. Not that God is tired, but the rest there was a ceasing from His labors because He contemplated the completion, the magnitude of His creation, and that it was right on that first Sabbath day for God, the Creator, to receive the worship of all of His creation. But now, as we'll see here, Moses is going to go back, tell us again some more things to expand our knowledge about this special creature man who's made in the image and likeness of God. And one of the things that he will tell us is about the special provisions that God made for man that were mentioned in that first brief description of Genesis 1, 26 and 28. About how God prepared a special living space for man in a place called Eden, creating a garden within it. And what is more, towards the end of our passage, we will learn how God, having made this special provision that He also offered to man generously that he might eat of every tree that was there in the garden, but God also gave a prohibition to man. And He attached a special warning to that prohibition, a warning of consequences that would come if he did not obey God's Word. Man's a special creature. And he's given special responsibilities. As Christ Himself will teach in Luke 12, 48, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. Only man made in the image of God. Given much. But also much required. Well, let's turn now and let's look at our passage. If we look at 
Genesis 2 here, verses 4 through 17, we can divide our passage into three parts. Three parts. The first part, verses 4 through 7, I'm going to describe this as a, a, a recap with expanded information on all of creation really, but especially about the special creation of man. Secondly, then, in verses 8 through 14, we have a description of God planting a garden in Eden as a living space for the first man. And then the third, final part of our passage is going to be verses 14, 15 rather through 17, where God places man in the garden, gives him generous provisions, but also makes a special prohibition, gives him a special prohibition along with a warning. And so let's go back now and let's look at these three parts of our text and let's begin with verses 4 through 7, which I called a recap of the creation and especially of the special creation of man. And so, verse 4 begins, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. And you might remember, I think I mentioned this earlier in this series, that the way that this starts here is actually a stock phrase that Moses used throughout Genesis. This, this opening phrase, These are the generations. That phrase also appears in Genesis 5.1, Genesis 6.9, Genesis chapter 10, uh, verse 1, chapter 11, verses 10 and 27, chapter 25, verse 12, verse 19, chapter 36, verses 1 and 9, chapter 37, verse 2. And so when we see this, we know that there's something new that's being told. It's a heading, it's a stock phrase that tells us here's a new subject, a new topic that's going to be addressed. And again, in this case, it's a recap of what we have just read from Genesis 1-1 up to to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. The use of the term here simply makes us as the readers aware that Moses is telling us something new. It's not a new account of creation, but it's an expanded focus on creation that will give us more information, especially about the creation of man. As one commentator puts it, what we have here is two accounts of the same event, each with a different focus. Whereas Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 centers upon God and the creation of the universe and the rest on the seventh day, Genesis 2 stresses the special place of mankind in his earthly confines. And so this is invaluable information for us that Moses is adding here by the movement of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember we were talking earlier about this, uh, for those of you who are literary geeks out there, uh, this phenomenon is called a chiasm. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a literary style. It can happen in, in, in any language, but it's very common in Hebrew. And it's, it's, it's an inverse pattern that shows up. And so if you look at verse 4, you can see that it's a chiasm. Uh, So there's part A. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. Part B, 
when they were created. Part B prime, in the day that the Lord God made. And then A prime, the earth and the heavens. And also, if you look at this closely, you'll, you'll, enter, you'll find something else interesting. If you look at that last phrase in verse 4, God made the earth and the heavens. Previously, when there's been a description of God making the heavens and the earth, it's in that order. He made the heavens and He made the earth. Look back at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Um, look Uh, at uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And look even at the beginning of verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. But now when we get to the end of verse 4, it reverses those. God made the earth and the heavens. And some people see that as uh, an intentional uh, change because the the writer is telling us, guided by the Spirit, that he's going to focus upon man on earth. The earthly events that involve man who is the crown of the creation in this special place called the earth. And so at the end of this, again, rarely is nothing, never, not rarely, never is anything in Scripture by happenstance. It's, It's always intentional. And so it's intentional here that we have this special focus that is given. Notice also a couple other things about this in verse 4. It says in verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. And what is that a reference to? Some would say it's just a metaphorical reference to at this moment, at this particular time. But I, I think it's more likely given that day so often means literally a day here in this historical narrative, that it's maybe just referring back to Genesis 1.1, God's ex nihilo creation of the building blocks of all things that He then takes and forms into into the, the created order that we see all around us. Notice also in verse 4 one other thing. Notice how God is described here. It says, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And this is an interesting combination of two names or titles for God. The first one is Lord. And you may well know when you're reading the Old Testament in particular, and you come to the word Lord written in all capital letters as it is here. What the translators are telling you is that behind that, is the special Hebrew name for God that consisted of four consonants. It's sometimes translated as Jehovah. In the authorized version of some modern translations, they use the word Yahweh. But it's the special name for God that many pious Jews wouldn't utter aloud. They wouldn't read it aloud. Instead, they they would use the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. And so... These old Protestant translators, when they came to that special name for God, they also would simply write it as Lord, and they would distinguish it that it's not Adonai, which they would write with, with a capital L and a smaller O-R-D. When it was this word, they wrote all the letters in capital. So it's Jehovah God. Jehovah Elohim. And it's interesting because that 
special name for God, Lord God, that combination name, if you'll notice, if you read carefully through Genesis 2 and 3, you find that it appears 20 times in these two chapters. And it appears only one other time outside of Genesis 2 and 3 in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 30. And perhaps that special title is being used of God here in the prompting of Moses' writing in order to indicate the special significance of what is going to be described here. It is the Lord God who is doing this special work in creation in raising up man as the crown of, uh, of His creation. We look next at verse 5. Verse 5 is something of a controversial verse because there are some who wrongly would suggest that it doesn't fit with the previous description of creation in day 3 in Genesis 1, 11, and 12 which describes the, the creation of the plant life. But I think that such persons don't grasp that Moses is giving us a streamlined recap And again, his main focus is to focus on the creation of man. In verse 5 it says, "...in every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground." And I think Moses here is simply taking us back indeed to day 3, as it's there in Genesis 1, 11 and 12, that God had on day 3, He had created plant life, But now we get the new information that rain had not been provided yet for the growth and flourishing of these things until the time of the creation of man on the sixth day. For indeed, there would be no need for this. The purpose of this was indeed providentially to provide for the needs of man. And so at this point, there was no man there to till or to steward it for food that God ordained that it would be there to provide for him. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 29... You might remember that God had said specifically that this plant life was given to man for food. It was part of the the providential provision for him. The fact that there were no torrential rains before the fall was a sign of God's protection. For as the generation of Noah will discover, rain and floods can be devastating. God's provision in the pre-fall world was instead, as we hear in verse 6, of a miraculous mist that provided for the hydration of the earth. Look at verse 6. But there went up a mist upon the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Sometimes when we run into things like this, We must remember, we're talking about God here. We're talking about a God who can say, let there be light, and there's light. He can do as He pleases. He can work through, above, or beyond means. But He provided a different means pre-fall than uh, post-fall. He provided this mist from the earth which watered the whole face of the ground. It's been pointed out that the Hebrew word here that is translated in the authorized version as mist the word aid might be rendered in a variety of ways. It might be rendered as streams, flow, waters of the deep, or here as mist. The only other place where this term in Hebrew appears in the Old Testament 
is in Job 36, verse 27, where it is translated as vapor. And so there's some mystery. We don't, the interpreters, the best scholars in the world, don't, can't really understand what this is. But God provided some way, pre-fall, for the hydration of the earth. You will notice also in verse 6 that it says that it watered the whole face of the ground. We're talking about learning our Hebrew. Uh, we, we've already learned that behemoth, our English word behemoth, comes from a Hebrew word that's translated as cattle here in uh, uh, Genesis 1. We learned uh, last time that the, the name for man, uh, the Hebrew name for man is Adam. Also the name of the first man. And the word for ground in Hebrew is Adamah. It's Adam and added A-H on the end. And so the very name for man and the name of the first man comes from the word that means ground. The name of the first man is Adam. Adam means man. The name for man comes from the word Adamah, ground. And what's being told us here, even before we're going to see the, the, the description of the creation of man from the dust of the, of the earth, there's a preparation here that's being made for us to make what we've called previously in this series the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what Christ said to the Samaritan woman at the well. In John 4.24. The psalmist David will say in Psalm 90 verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. God is everlasting. The Apostle Paul will write to Timothy. Words that we sometimes uh, sing here. God is eternal. Immortal. Invisible. God is all those, all those things, everlasting, eternal, immortal, invisible. Man, however, comes from dust. Man comes from the ground. And what we're, what's, what we're being prepared for, what's being reinforced, reinforced to us, is that the Bible has a very high view of man. We talked about this last time. He's the crown of creation. He's made in God's image and God's likeness. But man is not God. There is a setting here within chapter 2 of man in his rightful place. Some of you may be familiar with R.C. Sproul, who is a, uh, a well-known Presbyterian pastor and teacher who had the Ligonier Ministries, and he's now gone on to be with the Lord. But he used to tell the story uh, about meeting a young woman on a train. And I recently saw that someone did a... Um, did an animation uh, uh, of this uh, talk where, where, where Sproul gave this illustration. Anyway, he said he was on a train and a young woman came into the car, section of the train where he was traveling, and she had just come back from a new age retreat. And she began with excitement telling the captive audience within the seats around her about this new age retreat that she had been to. And she told them with excitement of how she had learned at this retreat that she is God. She said, can you believe it? I learned 
that I am God. And then Sproul said he was just sitting there. He was just being quiet. He wasn't bothering anybody. And she turned to him and said, what do you think? What do you think about what I discovered? And Sproul said he looked at her and he just simply said, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? And she said, no. You're right. In about 30 seconds, he dismantled that week-long New Age retreat she had because she knew, she knew she was not God. And she knew that was a lie. Every man knows that. We're made of dust. We're not God. There is someone greater than we are. There is our Creator. Man inherently, innately, knows that. Well, in verse 7, we have, now this leads up to, this more detailed description of the special creation of man. Look at verse 7. And the Lord God, again, that's the special title, combination title used for God in these two chapters. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. He formed Adam of Adamah and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Let's let's expand our Hebrew vocabulary and our basic Christian vocabulary. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit is nephesh. And it can refer to the Holy Spirit of God. It can refer to the wind. But it also refers to man's spirit or man's soul. And so God breathed into the dust that He had formed and man became a living soul. Let me, let me reflect on at least three things that emerge from this verse. First, physically speaking, once again, man comes from the dust. The term dust generally means loose earth, mud, or mortar. This shows the physical weakness and the vulnerability of man that will be made readily apparent after his fall into sin. So we can look, for example, look ahead. We'll peek ahead a couple times here. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. After the fall, when man is given the curse, look at the very end. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So, one thing we learn here, even before the fall, is about the fact that man is dust. And you may well know in Psalm 103, verse 14, which we're going to sing at the end of this message, it says, For He, God, knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Second of three things to to glean from verse 7 is that God is the one who formed us. One commentator notes that the language in this verse about God forming man 
is the same kind of language that's used in various passages in the Old Testament which describe God as the potter and man as the clay. This is a big image. Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 29. Jeremiah uses it in Jeremiah 18. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans 9. And it's the same language when it says he formed man. It's the language of the potter who takes the clay, throws it on the wheel and shapes it and and makes it. In Jeremiah 18, the prophet tells how he went to the potter's house and the Lord gave him this message to the people. Jeremiah 18.6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. As I said before, Paul uses this image in Romans 9 to describe the sovereignty of God in election. In Romans 9.20, he says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? So we learn that man is dust. We learn that God is the potter, the maker, the former of us as human beings. Thirdly, we learn in this passage that man... Man has not merely a physical body, but man has a soul. Man has a spirit. Human beings are both physical beings, but we're also spiritual beings. God animates. The word English word animate comes from the Latin animus, which means spirit. God puts a spirit in us. He animates us. He infuses us with a spirit. And this is another indicator of the special creation of man. This is part of what uh, is involved in us being made in the image of God. We're not just we're not just a bundle of biology. We are spiritual beings, spiritual beings. And we know this is really important. This description is really important because we, we as Christians have a hope that at the end of the ages there will be a resurrection from the dead. And our souls, which at our death depart and are with Christ to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord, will at the end of the ages be joined to our bodies. Our bodies will be transformed into resurrection bodies. And really... Part of the groundwork for understanding that is right here. That man is a, is a physical being formed of the dust, but he's also a being into whom God breathes a spirit. God animates. God gives him a spirit. Overall, this is but another evidence again of what is declared in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Man is a special creature within creation who bears the image of God. Let's look at the second part of our passage. This is verses 8-14. through 14. God plants a garden in Eden as a living space for the first man. We read about this beginning in verse 8 as it says, And the Lord God, special name that's used here, combination title used for God throughout this passage, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. 
Eden was the larger place God made for man, and he made a garden for him in Eden. Although the phrase garden of Eden is used in verse 14, the phrase used here is the garden in Eden, and it's perhaps clearer because it tells us that Eden was the larger dwelling place and the garden was the special place within Eden that was made in which man would dwell. Though the origins of the word Eden is uncertain, some suggest it is related to terms that mean luxury or delight. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Hebrew of the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they rendered the word here uh, with the Greek word paradison, from which we get the English word paradise. Think of all the beautiful places you've been to in the world. Our family uh, sometimes likes to uh, hike and camp and we've taken trips out west and man, go to Yellowstone, go to the Grand Tetons, that's our favorite place. It's just majestic. It's beautiful to see those places. But I'm going to suggest something to you. As beautiful as those places are, They're beautiful places in a post-fallen world. Can you imagine the luxury and the beauty of Eden in its pre-fall, pristine, never been out of the box condition? It probably makes Yellowstone look like a garbage dump. God made this beautiful dwelling place for man. And we're told briefly, also in verse 8, and there he put the man whom he had formed. That's, there's going to be an expansion upon this in verses 15 through 17. There's more description of God's fixing up this place for man in verse 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And some might rush ahead here and and also say, but wait a second, he already made the the trees on uh, day three. But don't forget, this is a description of the special creation of Eden on day six. And it was in this place called Eden that he was causing these trees to grow up that would provide for all the needs of man and he could eat all these things that were good for food. And here we could we could draw another illustration. I mean, do you like eating good fruit? Yeah. Well, it's all you know that's all post Genesis 3 fruit we're eating and things think we think taste so great. Can you imagine what pre-fall fruit tasted like? We could have one bite of pre-fall fruit. We would think the stuff we're being, we're picking off the tree now, is swill. And so God provided in His goodness. He provided all these things. And there's a mention also that in verse nine of two special trees. First of all, second half of verse nine, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. It gives us a special location for the tree of life. And 
there's a mention again, if we, if we peek over again to chapter 3, verse 22, after the fall, we learn something about the tree of life. Because man is going to be forbidden from eating from the tree of life after, after the fall. But there's a mention there at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, that if one eats of the tree of life, he will live forever. That was accessible to pre-fall man, the tree of life. And there's also there within the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whereas we're told the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, we're not told the exact location within Eden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we shall see, God shall forbid man to eat of this tree. And there's been a lot of discussion, as you might imagine, over the years over what is the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's what one commentator wrote. He said, Some believe it signifies carnal knowledge or ethical knowledge or just plain evil. In reality, good and evil is, he used a literary term here, a merism, like heaven and earth. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It means that mankind, if they eat of that tree, would become aware of all things. Things that are good, as well as things that are bad. And he points out that prior to man partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, human beings were innocent. And they had only the experience and knowledge of good things. They had not yet been exposed to the knowledge and experience of evil things. After being a parent for 30 plus years, and after being around kids in various situations, I often say that my favorite age for a child is about 18 months. That's the golden age, in my humble opinion. Because at that age, they have a real sweetness about them. And they haven't yet been much stained by cynicism and as much willful pride and doubt. And at that age, I think they have the most incredible capacity for love and trust. They have a quality that is like original innocence. Now, if we can perhaps sense that in children who have inherited original sin and who have committed actual transgressions, what must the innocence of the first man have been like? He didn't even know what evil was. He only knew the good. It's like Yellowstone's a dump. Our fruit is swill. And we don't even know what it's like to be in the state of innocence and not even know what evil is. Sadly, we know evil all too well because we're living in a post-fallen world, aren't we? Well, what happened to time? In verses 10 through 14, we have a description of four rivers that are provided for uh, mankind within Eden. Verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. 
The name of the first is Pishon or Pisan. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and where, where and the gold of that land is good. There is Bedalium and the onyx stone. And so he describes this this uh, first river. And by the way, again, we're living in a in a post Genesis three world. We're also living in a post uh, flood age. And so the original locations of many of these places. Don't listen to anybody who tells you that they know where these places are. They don't know. Uh, it's unclear. We're not sure. We, we, the ancient geography has been changed now by the circumstances that we're in. What's interesting here is he mentions all these precious stones. I mean, you, you get the sense that it, it was said in Solomon's day that in Solomon's day, silver were like rocks. Well, imagine again what it was like in the pre-fallen world. Here are these gems and stones Precious things that are everywhere. The name of the second river is Gihon. Uh, it, it says it, it encompassed the, the whole land of Ethiopia. Behind that is the, the Hebrew word Cush. Um, and then we get a little, little, little uh, on more safer ground on knowing these places. The, the Hidakel in verse 14 we think is the Tigris River. It goes east towards Syria. Toward the east of of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And this was one that was likely known well even in Moses' day, right? That's why he doesn't have to say much about it. Because it's more easily locatable in a post-fallen world. Let's move on to the third part of the passage. God places the man in the garden and gives him a special prohibition along with a warning. It says in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man, the Lord God, our combination title, used throughout chapters 2 and 3, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And this is really, verses 15 through 17, is really expansion of what we were already told in the second half of verse 8. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay? So he's, he's put there with two purposes as spelled out here. To dress it and to keep it. To dress it and to keep it. Man was made to be a sub-manager under God who is the manager, capital M. So he's put there to dress it and to keep it. At least one commentator makes the point that the two terms here could also be understood as to serve and to obey. Man is put in the Garden of Eden to serve and to obey, to dress and to keep the garden. Man has been created to glorify God by serving and obeying Him. And then the Lord offers a commandment to the first man that includes a most generous provision for him and a clear prohibition. First, there is the generous provision in verse 16. And then there is the the warning, the prohibition in verse 17, and then the warning at the end of verse 17. What is described here in verses 15 through 17 of Genesis 2 is something that is often called by theologians the covenant of creation or the covenant of life or the covenant of works. Calvin in his commentary called it a test of obedience. First, there is the most generous provision that is given to to man. Verse 16, And Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. 
That's a very generous provision. So many trees, so many fruits that man could eat of in the garden. But then there is the clear prohibition. First half of verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. And we get a clue here, don't we, as to how sin operates. We know it well. We know it from our own fallen experience. God provides for us a vast array of things that we might pursue that are good, that are wholesome, that are right, that are just, that are virtuous, that are soul satisfying. And He prohibits from us things that would do us damage. And what is it we crave? That which God in His wisdom forbids. That's the sin dilemma. The parent says, don't touch the stove. And what does the child think? I wonder what it would feel like to touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Ah, I want to touch the stove. I was told I couldn't touch it, so I want to touch it. And very often that hand, that little hand reaches out to touch the stove and it gets burned. There's a clear warning at the end of verse 17. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the warning, the dire warning. Man cannot say he was not warned. Paul will write in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. But God said it first in the garden. Now one might say, it, it says here, in verse 17, some people pick at this and they say, in the day that thou eatest, but Adam and Eve eat and they don't immediately die. But what did happen is that they, they immediately entered into spiritual death. That would eventually issue in physical death. But friends, we've worked through the passage. And as we go back and, and we reflect upon it, it's a very important passage. It's describing human beings as we used to be. The Baptist Catechism, question 15, asks, What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? And it answers, When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. That's a a beautiful summary of what the covenant of creation, the covenant of life, or the covenant of works is. God made a provision. It demanded perfect obedience. It forbade God's word, forbade the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God gave the penalty. The penalty is death. And the truth is that man in his pre-fallen state had a pristine and untarnished free will. Sometimes we who are reformed in our theology, people will wrongly accuse us of not believing in free will. We believe in free will. We just believe that man's will has been damaged by sin. We believe like Luther said that man's will is in bondage to sin. We even have a whole chapter in our confession of faith about the free will. 
And in the second paragraph, chapter 9 of our confession, it says, man in a state of innocency had freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. See? We had free will. We might, Adam might have done what was right. And yet his will was mutable. And instead he did what was wrong. We'll see that later when we get to chapter 3. And this has put all of us in a place where we are today. Mankind has lost that state of innocency. We are now in a fallen state. And apart from God's grace, we have no spiritual ability to alter our circumstances. As one person said, we are like men who are, who are drowning and you can, you can throw a rope to us all day long, but our arms are tied behind our backs. You can throw the rope out to us all you want. We can't grasp it. This is why God Himself must reach out in grace and grasp us, for we have no hands to hold on to the gospel. The Lord Jesus will say, as recorded in John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. We need to know this history of humanity. We need to know our own spiritual history to understand our present state apart from Christ. And we need to understand this passage to understand what God has done for us in Christ. Let me just read one final passage from the New Testament. Ran across this in God's providence this week and I thought, wow, this connects so well. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is teaching about the final resurrection. And he said this, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 47. The first man, he said, is of the earth. Earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The first man was Adam. And he was earthy. The second man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord of heaven. He continues, 1 Corinthians 15, 48. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. As Adam became, so we are. And then he said of Christ, as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. We're earthy like Adam, but we can be linked to the Lord of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says of such ones, verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That's a great hope, isn't it? We who have borne the image of the earthy will bear the image of the heavenly. The, The Imago Christi restores what was lost and tarnished in the Imago Dei. To be in Christ is to have uh, ourselves restored. And that is the great hope of the gospel. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together.
Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give Thee thanks for Thy Word and for this foundational account that we're having the privilege to meditate upon on these Lord's Day mornings together. Help us to understand these insights, these revelations that are given to us to understand our history as human beings. Maybe to help us understand where we are now, why, why it is we struggle sometimes to do what is right, to do what is virtuous, to do what is lovely. And help us to understand uh, the One who lived the perfect life, Christ Himself. And help us to pursue Him by Thy grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.